Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are smoking a ton of packs this week. We're smoking that Bunga Bunga pack. We're smoking that Boris pack. We're nearly about to smoke that Donald Trump pack. It's a good week. Anyone's public enemies, Chuck D. Ring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. It's been a really good week politically, not <laughs> just in terms of just news, uh, leaders dying or getting indicted and shit, or just straight up leaving because they're cowards. I love it. I'm here for it. Getting arrested as well. Just asked. What a week. Out fucking standing week. Out fucking standing week. Like, I, w- I wish I was. Uh, I wish I was regularly watching the news like I used to, because uh, this would have been fun a fun week just to just to watch, you know, just to watch unfold and just to see what people are saying, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, it is what it is. I've been, I've been doing stuff, so it's, uh, it's fine. But anyway, um, yeah, man, really can't really complain. Um, week is okay. I'm about to uh, do some stuff um, in the next couple of weeks, so... Um, I'm hearing up a couple of shows this week, um, that's why I'm recording on a Tuesday, uh, ready for you guys to listen on Thursday. I'm hearing up a show on Wednesday and also Friday, um, and then next week, um, there won't be a regular show, um, instead I'm just gonna record a couple of long reads and, uh, drop them on Thursday and Friday, uh, for you guys instead. Um, I'm actually house-sitting for that week, for next week, um, so I won't be able to record during the week, um, so yeah, it is what it is, um, yeah, so I'm just gonna try and sometime this week, uh, to just knock out a couple of long reads and then schedule that up for next week and, uh, yeah, just keep the train going, never leaving you without a dope pod to step to. So, with that said, let's jump right into this episode, uh, where we have an environment, politics, society, and life uh, topics to get into, to get our teeth into. Formatties before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes, as well as music and podcasts under 5 EPN. Just finished the Book of Woo series on Digging Digits, so give that a spin and, uh, well, give all 12 episodes a spin. Um, there's 12 episodes all on Wu-Tang Clan, so, and it was very, very interesting and very fun to do um, over the past few months, and um, I can finally rank the Wu-Tang members and actually not feel like a fraud, because I've actually listened to um, the records and I actually know what I enjoy out of all of them, so yeah, get into that if you want to get into that. But with that said, let the beat drop, let's get into the show. In a week where an American East Coast is plunged in smoke after a wildfire in Canada, uh, Donald Trump is indicted for federal crimes, which means he actually might go to jail. 
Oh my gosh, can't wait, can't wait for that fucking day, that's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, can't wait. Uh, Boris Johnson steps down as MP, which we will get into later in the show. Uh, the Unabomber, uh, Ted Kaczynski, uh, dies in prison, prison aged 81, uh, via suicide. And lastly, Silvio Berlusconi dies aged 86. Salute to the Punga Bunga dude. That's such a all I know for. Literally that he just like was caught on underage satin uh with his bunga bunga parties and that's just um out fucking standing. Um yeah. Uh, he's probably proto the proto Boris, right? In some ways. Uh or proto Trump, one of the two. Um or maybe both, who knows? I, I don't know politically what he was about. I know he's like right wing dude. Forza Italia, right? Um, but yeah, apart from that, not really sure. Apart from the fact that he had a supremely leathery tanned skin, um, the whitest teeth that teeth ever, um, and aforementioned <laughs> bunker bunker place. I, I, I kind of remember that from back in the day. But I remember the news drop and I just hear bunker bunker pie, and I'm just like, that sounds fun. <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway. Let's jump into the environment. Um, so a couple of episodes ago, I've put the link in the description um, about, uh, talked about uh, plastics, recycling plastic and how that kind of wasn't cutting it. Um, whereas, you know, for years, I just thought that was at le- the least, you know, we could do is just recycle plastics, put it in the pink bag, you know what I mean? And and boom, we, we, we're on the way. So it's obviously a small step to what is and um, to what should be um, you know, either a, pla- well, hopefully a plastic-free, you know, world and, you know, just general, uh, just general uh, progress when it comes to our environmental footprint. <laughs> but apparently that doesn't cut it. So I wanted to find something, and I did find something relatively quickly, um, about plastic and just, you know, the attempts to what can we do with it, you know, and, um found this good article. It's via the East Anglia, East Anglia bylines. Um, it's called Plastic, What to Do With It? Ran by Kate Moore. So, with that said, let's jump right in. Plastic pollution is, quote, one of the greatest global environmental challenges we currently face, unquote, according to the UK government. Its stated aim is to end plastic pollution by 2040 by, via a legally binding global treaty. This will be a mammoth challenge as the UK is considered to be the second biggest producer of plastic waste per capita in the world and fifth largest producer of single-use plastic waste. I did not know that. In the meantime, plastic is littering our roads and flowing into waterways, contaminating oceans, killing and maiming wildlife and, as explained in Plastic Part 1, harming us, which you can read, obviously, in the link. Uh, Plastic will outlive us, taking decades or centuries to biodegrade, 600 years to break down fishing line, 450 years to break down plastic bottles and disposable nappies, styrofoam, take away coffee cups, uh, take 50 years, plastic shopping bags take up to 20, and cigarette butts take 10 years. The question is, how do they break down? Some compostable bags need high industrial temperatures to decompose. Some bags marketed as biodegradable, biodegradable have a chemical named EPI, added within the manufacturing process, which helps it to break down, but these oxo-degradable plastics only fragment into microplastics. 
They don't break down at the molecular or polymer level, like biodegradable and compostable plastics, leaving microplastics in the environment indefinitely until they eventually fully break down. While governments discuss a big business lobby, uh, happily, 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 they are many. There are many private initiatives. There we go by eco- ecologically minded organizations and individuals to try and address plastic pollution. The marine con- conservation. I always get I always get thrown off by the word conservation because I know it exists, but I just immediately think conversation right first but it's conservation the marine conservation society states that eight percent of litter in the sea starts on the land the ocean cleanup have determined that nearly half of the plastic entering water sinks uh, because of its low buoyancy the remaining floating plastic doesn't go far out to sea about eight percent of floating plastic will beach on a coastline within a month or a month of leaking into the sea. Anyone who has participated in a five-minute beach clean or marine cons- conservation uh, beach clean understands its retrieval can be a labour-intensive and costly job. In the port of Lowestoft in Suffolk, inshore marine debris is collected using a Versi Cat Trash Skimmer, a specialist trash retrieval and waterway cleanup craft designed by Waterwitch Marine and Engineering. This UK company designs efficient, low-cost, shallow-draft, easily maneuverable boats, which are specifically engineered to collect and remove marine debris and plastic litter from waterways. Since 1966, Water Witchcraft have removed over a million tons of marine debris from the UK and around the world. Quote, By tackling the flow of plastics and wasting our inland waterways, uh, rivers and estuaries, we can really make a huge difference, says Jackie Caddick. Water Witch Director. In the 60 years that we have worked in the field, you can imagine that the focus has really shifted to dealing with huge amounts of single pla- single-use plastics entering our rivers and eventually the ocean. Unquote. The Versi Craft Trash Skimmer, skim skimmer, who's got the keys? Sorry, uh, collects smaller plastic items such as coffee cups, plastic bottles, food wrappers, styrofoam, and plastic bags, as well as large items like timber. Who bins timber? What, what do you mean? Anyway, uh, po- the port, a port of Lowestoft spokesman said, quote, the craft's principal function is to support the efficient collection of litter, debris, and aquatic vegetation from the water surface, and it will play a vital role in helping to keep Lowestoft Harbour and Lake Lothing, 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 uh, clear of pollution. We need to move away from single-use plastics, but unfortunately, the demand for plastic is only going to increase expected to triple by 2060, and reductions are unlikely to take any effect for decades to come, Jackie Caddick laments. So although we agree that production and use needs to be controlled to solve a problem, I believe that it's no excuse for not trying to do something about cleaning up the millions of tons of plastic litter entering our ocean every year, unquote. Ocean plastic is accumulating in five ocean garbage patches, quote-unquote. The largest three times the size of France is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Analysis by the Ocean Cleanup has identified that 75% to 86% of floating plastic waste is composed of offshore fishing-related plastic waste. To date, their systems have collected over 3,200 tons of debris around the world. From small pieces, just millimetres in size to up to large debris, including massive discarded fishing nets, ghost nets, called ghost nets, which can be used, uh, which can be tens of metres wide. While the ocean cleanup work with partners uh, to recycle the retrieved plastics into useful products, 
such as sunglasses, with the intention of making the operation financially self-sustainable. Others are looking at other usages, such as energy from waste production, EFW. In spite of efforts to reduce, reuse, and recycle, in Norfolk alone, over 200,000 tonnes of household waste are still not recycled. In previous years, landfill was the answer. Now it is largely used to generate energy. Norfolk County Council and Suffolk County Councils send plastic waste to energy from waste facilities. Norfolk County Council send approximately 180,000 tonnes of waste a year to the Rookery South facility in Bedfordshire and around 20,000 tonnes a year to Great Blakenham EFW in Suffolk. Great Blakenham EFW has has a permitted operational capacity of 269,000 tonnes per annum. It is operated and owned by Suez and was part refinanced by Suffolk County Council in late 2018 for 22.6% of the value of the plant. Based upon the conventional combustion technology with gases from the burning process going through a multi-stage cleaning process, the Great Blakenham EFW facility, for example, delivers around 20 megawatts of electricity to the national grid, enough to power 40,000 homes. With plastic production only going to rise, and governments, uh, governments inevitably lobbied by vested interests, controls will always be behind the curve. Recycling uh, is shown to increase plastic toxicity, so the challenge appears to be that, quote, plastics have no place in the circular economy, and it's clear the only real solution to any plastic pollution is to massively reduce plastic production, unquote. Meanwhile, beach cleans, litter picks, and marine debris retrieval will have to continue. Excuse me, as Jackie Caddick says, quote, it is not a solution. But at least we can send the tide. As I see it, every single piece of plastic removed from our rivers and waterways make a difference. And by cleaning up our inland and coastal waterways, which is relatively cheap and easy to do, we can reduce the amount of plastics entering the ocean. So that's the end of the article. And um, I just had a thought. Like, just I don't know if it's radical, right? But just a thought. Um, so you know how... Um, uh, well, you might not know. So in Finland, and uh, I think this happens in other countries, a few other countries, right? Maybe rest of the country Scandinavia who knows but um, in Finland specifically because I just know that it exists there um, in Finland they have a mandatory uh, like when you turn 18 I think you have to at some point uh, report for um, army reserves or just you know military reserves right you have to do a certain amount of training and obviously you become trained on certain things and when you're done with it you're done with it. You can go back to whatever you're doing um, and, you know, continue on with your life, right? But in that moment, um, when they call upon you to to for, to report to that um, military uh, reserves training, um, you have to go do it. So, for example, um, Larry Markinen, who's um, a basketball player for Utah Jazz, um, as soon as the season ended, he went to Finland to fulfill his... For, to fulfill his military thingy, right? It's mandatory. Every, um, I think, uh, able person in Finland have to do it. I don't know if it's male and female, but whatever. Um, people, right? And um, I'm, I'm just teeing this up for something, for just an idea I just had, right? Um, I think um, wherever you live, especially if you're coastal, right? If you're bi-coastal, like me, if you're within a certain mileage, right? A mile radius, right? Of, the be- of any beach, um, I feel it's it should be mandatory for everyone at some point, let's just say twice a year, right? Twice a year. 
uh, or maybe during the summer periods, whatever, summer, spring period, right? Because obviously um, not many people are at the beach on in December, February, <laughs> January, February, right? But, you know, just at a certain point in time, twice a year, um, regardless of, you know, if you're able-bodied, right, and, um, you know, you can get off work to do this, um, apologies if you hear the plane, I have my window open because I'm not having my door closed and my window closed. Um, you can, uh, you have to report for litter picking. Um, let's say, like, just, just for the beaches, right? Ocean waste, all of that stuff. Just collect everything. You spend, just to, just to say, a few hours, six hours, right? Six hours, right? Uh, let's just say that. Six hours, uh, or just, or 12 hours total um, throughout the year. And you can report to it whenever you want, but you have to report to it. Um, actually, let's not say you have to report to it because you know, not saying whenever you want because obviously people just completely forget about it. But when you when when you are called upon, you do that, right? You you can get off work, whatever. Uh, you you you're off work for that day, but you go to your local beach and you pick and you pick litter and you know retrieve ocean waste, all of that stuff. I feel that is a really good seeds i will say seeds of an idea um obviously if you're mainland if you're like in birmingham whatever you might not have to do that right is what it is but i just feel there's something that as a public we need to do right and i feel like we need to pull our weight more when it comes to stuff like this because like i said plastic production isn't stopping so we can't rely on the government for this unfortunately. I would love to rely on the government for a lot of things, of which we will get into later, actually, funny enough, um, in some fashion. But when it comes to this, um, it's not It's not going to, they're not going to, I mean, look at the Tory party now, they're not going to do it, <laughs> they're not going to focus on ocean waste plastic, right? Uh, and I'm not re- relying on Adidas to, um, you know, use their, their parlay, whatever you want, uh, initiative, um, you know, I'm not I'm not relying on them, right? To rinse all the world of plastic, be just so just uh, as long as you buy their as long as you buy their hoodies made from ocean waste plastic, right? Not everybody's going to do that. Um, not every company's going to do that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, who's it left to? I feel it's left up to us. And um, you know, I don't think this is something that people do willingly. I'm sure there are people um, that you know really. Well, well, like Miss Craddock there, right? Really dedicate themselves to this cause and it is a worthy cause, I believe, um, as much as many things. Um, but I've, I, I, you know, maybe schools one day, may, maybe schools should have like a day out of just picking litter for a couple of hours so they can, and also, you know, learn about ocean waste and how bad it is and how much of an existential threat it is. Right, and this this doesn't have to be applied to um, ocean waste. It can be applied to any environmental thing, right? Um, well, actually, when it's mainland, plastics in general, like you know, go out and just pick up fucking litter. You know what I mean? Obviously, this is a people consider this as community service, and it is. So serve your fucking community, and I feel like we all should. I feel like we all should. So uh, that's just an idea, seeds of an idea, just thrown out there. But, um, and I feel like that could go a long way if everybody, you know, is partaking in that. Um, so, just just a thought. Just a, just a thought that pops into my head as I was reading.
Okay, let's hop into politics. And once again, we're smoking that forest pack. There we go. Nice. We're smoking that Boris pack once again. We did it a few. We did it a while back. I think it was episode one eighty three. Don't quote me on that. Um, let me check. Chickity check. Uh, let me check. Uh, Boris. Yep, smoking that Boris pack. Uh, episode one eighty six. So get it spinning on that. If you wanted um, some thoughts on when he uh, uh, stepped down as PM, but now he has stepped down as MP of uh, Uxbridge and South Ryslip. And um, that's good. That's good. That's great. Because that's one less reason to give a fuck about Boris Johnson. One less. A little bit lesser every day. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just going to celebrate a little bit. Got to take these dubs. Got to take these dubs. He might come back, just so you know. like there's he, he's, he's always been um, a person that has just, um, you know, kind of been considered dead and then just comes back and you know um somehow gains power in some fashion right um so you know he might come back and uh i will and until then i'll be smoking that boris pack for now we'll celebrate and let's talk about this um this is via adam Adam bienkov uh via uh, Byline Times is called Boris Johnson's Rise and Fall has perfectly exposed Britain's broken political culture. And this, um, you know, links to a lot of things I talk about where um, uh, if if politicians were re- actually serious about their jobs, they would be much more restrictive on A, who the fuck can be an MP. Um, well, not, not that, but a, a, the limits as to what MPs can do i.e. second jobs, all that shit. Obviously, that was a thing a couple of years ago. I don't know if it still is. Probably is. Who knows? The new cycle fucks off as, as it does. Um, but to get this dude out quicker than usual, man. Like, come on, man. Why does he, why does he have to take the... Why did he have to take the way out and step down? Why is he... Why was he not gone beforehand? Seriously. It takes too fucking long, all this shit. Anyway, let's jump right into this because I'm sure... Adam Yankov can explain this um, and elucidate on all of this and uh, and how broken political system is better than I. So let's jump right. Boris Johnson's long and rambling resignation statement, which paints himself as a victim of a vast cross-party conspiracy to reverse the exit, has inevitably drawn comparisons with former President Donald Trump. The comparisons are obvious. Both men are proven liars who rely on the support of a minority of fanatical supporters willing to forgive almost anything they do. And while both have used deception to get to the top of their respective political systems, both are now finally being found out. However, while the former president is fairly well adapted to taking advantage of the flaws in the American system, Johnson was almost laboratory engineered to take advantage of the weakness in the British political system. These weaknesses have been well covered on these pages and include an inherent class deference, the do- dominance of the public school system, an archaic constitution reliant on gentlemanly behaviour, honour, gentlemanly honour, sorry, rather than written rules, the triviality of the press, a media system based on access and patronage rather than accountability and transparency. There you go, there's a couple right there. All of these flaws help Johnson survive and prosper, despite being involved in the sorts of political scandals and policy disasters that in most other countries would have long ago brought him back down to ground. But ultimately, these weaknesses in the British system were his own weaknesses too. 
is prioritization over deference of deference over competence. Me meant he surrounded himself with weak and trivial figures, both inside Downing Street and Parliament. Any politician who counts among their closest allies, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris, is never going to be able to manage an enduring political project. His absurd resignation honestness, which included such political minnows as Andrea Jenkins and Michael Fabricant, is as a is as clear a demonstration of his own flaws as it is possible to imagine. Ultimately, Johnson's political career ended just how it began, with lies. It was not, as he claimed in his statement, a shadowy network of Remainers, leftists trying to reverse the exit who brought him down, but his own actions and those of his party. Despite his claims of a pro-European cabal conspiring to force him out, the Privileges Committee is actually made up of a majority of Conservative and Exiteer members. Uh, meanwhile, his exit, haha, ironic, from down the street was secured, not by Sue Gray and Harriet Harman, but by the concerted efforts of his own cabinet, who resigned en masse in order to force him out. Viewed from outside uh, our own borders, Johnson's preeminence has long been a symbol of everything that is risable about post-exit Britain. As mocked on foreign newspaper front pages, as he is revered, revered on our own, Johnson's success is often a mystery to outsiders, but what is obvious to European commentators and late-night US comics is somehow far less obvious to those at the top of our own media system. Even on Friday night, as Johnson was forced into the second humiliating resignation in just 12 months, British commentators were still lining up to talk, uh, talk up the prospects of yet another return to the top for what the BBC described as this quote-unquote colossus of British politics. Ugh. Fucking hell. Have some fucking decorism, man. Where is the decorism? Grim. Grim state of affairs. <sighs> but the truth is that it's over. In the end, he resigned, not as part of some brilliantly clever Machiavellian plot to somehow get back into Downer Street, but because he had finally, after decades of lying on the indulgences of others, run out of willing dupes. In 1988, a young Johnson wrote an essay about how to succeed in student politics. For the aspiring politician, the most important tactic was to surround yourself with what he described a, as a, quote, disciplined and deluded collection of stooges. The tragedy of the stooge, he wrote, is he wants, to, he wants so much to believe that his relationship with the candidate is special that he shuts out the truth. The terrible art of the candidate is to coddle the self-deception of stooge, unquote. For decades... Johnson was highly successful at coddling this self-deception. It was not that he was a special case, but that his supporters so desperately wanted him to be one that they shut out the grubbier truth of the man and politician he really was. Yet, like all great deceptions, the Johnson lie ultimately got found out. That it took so long is a testament not to his own inherent brilliance as a politician, but to our own inherent weaknesses. In a sane and well-adjusted country, the rise and fall of a man like Boris Johnson would stand as an immediate object lesson of everything that is wrong in our political system. However, the front page of today's Daily Mail, two of those two of whose senior editors were initially lined up for gongs by Johnson, instead lords Johnson as a quote genuinely inspiring leader who had an everyman vision for the country. It is hard to believe that even the male's leadership really believes this. Throughout Johnson's life and career, his quote-unquote vision has been not so much quote-unquote every man as one man. 
as he famously proved back in 2016 when writing two articles, both for and against the exit, in order to decide which would help, which would most help his cause. Johnson's only enduring principle has been to secure whatever happens to be his particular personal advantage at the time. Yet such selfishness and narcissism can only get you so far. Three years ago, under a plan hatched by his former aide, Dominic Cummings, Johnson ordered his then-Chancellor Sajid Javid to sack all of his advisers. When Javid refused, a bemused Johnson told him, quote, But Saj, your advisers, they're just people, unquote. But what Johnson can understand is that while to him they may have been, quote-unquote, just people, to be sacrificed in his endless monomaniacal quest for self-advantage, to Javid they were loyal colleagues and friends. A far worse selfishness was evident during the pandemic when he allegedly urged colleagues to, quote, let the bodies pile high, unquote, rather than submit opposition demands for an early lockdown. The result, which is currently being examined by official public inquiry, was the unnecessary death of thousands of what Johnson would no doubt consider just people. Subsequent revelations about Johnson's own reckless behaviour inside Downing Street as he forced millions of other people to remain selfishly in their homes only added insult to this injury. That Johnson was like this was evident from the very early days of his career, whether it was being sacked for making up quotes and lying to his boss, or being recorded agreeing to to help get a journalist beaten up the evidence was always there for anyone willing to look at it. I actually didn't know that. Agreeing to help a journalist get beaten up. Wow. Well, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. Um, however, despite the truth being so apparent, Johnson has consistently been treated by parts of the media as either a figure of fun or as a source of mere political entertainment. This reckless self-indulgence has resulted in deep damage to our country and its political culture. Sadly, this legacy, which is most evident in our ongoing isolation within Europe, will continue to harm us long after Johnson and his dwindling band of political stooges have moved on. It should be uh, to our enduring national shame that his exit took anywhere near as long as it did. Perfect. Fucking perfect. Perfect an article as you can read this year, really in just a short amount of time. I don't know how long that read was, but it felt short. Just got the fucking job done. Just really just fucking nailed exactly the thoughts of what how how it should be. How everyone should see Boris Johnson as a liar and a fucking maniacal fucking egotist. Absolute nutcase. Right? Everyone should see him as that. And the fact that people still decried in him is fucking embarrassing. And anybody that did do that immediately is an L just in your personality that's a red flag if I've ever fucking seen one so um, yeah shout out to that right up shout out to Mr. Bianco on that one that was a banger um, and yeah and until until the next time we will continue to smoke that Johnson pack Okay, so if you were here last week, you remember um, one bit of In A Week Aware where it briefly talks about uh, a UBI, which is a universal basic income. Um, it is being trialled here in the UK, uh, well, here in England anyway, um, for 30 people, um, I, I assume half up north and half uh, in a particular part of London, um, and they're going to get 
1600 quid, no questions asked, um, as a UBI. And they're free to do with it however they please, right? Um, so this has obviously brought about conversations about UBI. And um, for, I've, t- I've talked to people about it around me. And as you can imagine, everybody's fucking with it. Um, but let's pedal it back a little bit and try and be relatively critique uh, critique it um, properly you know let's let's get critical about ubi um so i saw this piece um which is which is which does critique ubi in a sense um but uses a leftist lens which i appreciate um because as you can imagine the lens of the right and people that claim to be center it's very obvious where they're at where they you know ooh, but people won't want to work if they get free money this isn't a uh, this isn't a bank of government, you know, mum and dads, like you know, what I mean, shit like that. It's just it's easy, it's obvious. We know what's going to happen there, so, and we know what's going to be said there, right? People don't want the poor to not be poor. Why would they want that, right? They want the poor to be poor. They want the poor to continue to be poor, even though they get the UBI as well because universal, right? But obviously, they don't care because they got money. Um, but they, they, why would they, why would, why ever would we give the poor more money? <laughs> How would that, why would that happen? But anyway, that's too easy. Let's look at the leftist lens. Um, this is by Aaron Bastani. Um, it's written, uh, in the new statement, statesman, and it's called the left should champion universal basic services, not UBI. So let's get into this. Uh, Quote, uh, work saves us from three great evils, wrote Voltaire, boredom, vice, and need, unquote. For the Enlightenment philosopher, toil wasn't merely a means to gain a living, but a thing that infuses life itself with value. That axiom gets to the heart of how our culture views work. So it's unsurprising that some find the proposal of universal basic income, UBI, which would untether wages from work incomprehensible. Appearing on Good Morning Britain earlier this week, the businesswoman and apprentice winner Michelle Dubery uh, called the potential uh, effectiveness of forthcoming UBI pilot schemes the quote-unquote height of delusion. I have reservations about UBI, but these are not the result of believing work is inherently virtuous. I believe that technological change should lead to more leisure time rather than, as at present, to higher profits. So permit me to critique UBI not from the right, but the left. The planned pilot schemes attracting such ire will take place in Jarrow in North East England and East Finchley, North London. There you go, specifics. I keep saying somewhere in London, somewhere up north. Uh, East Finchley and Jarrow. Between those two locations, 30 people will receive monthly payments of £1,600 for two years, which will supplement their existing earnings. I support the program because it will least it will test Voltaire's hypothesis about the necessity of work for happiness. Will those taking part become bored and lazy, or will they become more productive and virtuous? But given the demands for national and truly universal UBI, consider for a moment the cost of expanding the scheme. This would mean 38 million working-age people receiving monthly payments totaling £19,200 a year meaning a total cost of £730 billion. It's important to point out that nobody is suggesting replicating the exact figures in the pilot scheme nationally. So let's look at alternative projections by Pressure Group Compass. Uh, In 2016, 
It modelled a scheme that would pay £244 a month to every working-age adult in the UK and smaller payments to other groups. This would complement rather than replace existing social programmes, adding more than £170 billion a year to public spending, around the same as the day-to-day health budget this year. Yet Compass found that even with this extraordinary intervention, child poverty would only fall from 16% to 10%, while every while pensioner poverty would stay broadly the same. Even if we assume this is too pessimistic, it is worth comparing such a proposal with a different approach, Universal Basic Services, UBS. For £170 billion a year, we could not only fund primary and secondary education, already themselves forms of UBS, but higher education too. Alongside this, we could create a national care service for young and older alike, a critical resource for any society facing the challenge of demographic ageing. We could also provide free and eventually entirely electric public transport, as Luxembourg already does. I don't know if it's Luxembourg or Berg, I say Borg, but it might be Berg, as well as a socialised broadband service. Finally, we could return to a world of abundant social housing, where publicly owned homes meet demand and help limit house prices for those looking to buy. With extra funding, we could reimagine energy as a universal basic service, with the customer rather than private energy firms benefiting from the deflationary tendencies of renewable energy. The return on such an investment seems superior to UBI, not least because it permits society to engage with the principal challenges of the 21st century, climate crisis, demographic ageing, stagnant living standards and automation. After all, we are told UBI would mean we work and commute less, thus reducing consumption of fossil fuels. I support a four-day week for precisely this reason, but the truth is that to decarbonise by 2040, we need one thing market fundamentalists hate, planning. Public transport as a UBS would help us engineer a zero-carbon economy in a highly coordinated way. The same is true for housing. With new social homes built to a passive house, H-A-U-S, passive house, standards of uh, energy efficiency and solar panels adorning every roof. Then there is care work and the challenge of an ageing population, often gestured to by proponents of UBI. Women do most care work, so we should have UBI. This is certainly true, but then why should men, who are less likely to be caregivers, also receive it? And why remunerate care in such a chaotic way if it is analogous, analogous, analogous to a job? Surely a preferable alternative is a national care service, free at the point of use and paid through progressive taxation. Finally, there are the politics of UBI versus UBS. Universal basic services are readily comprehensible to the electorate, not least because they build on something everyone is already familiar with, post-war public services. It may be fashionable to say we can't go back, but even a majority of conservative voters favour public ownership of energy, water and the Royal Mail. Why wouldn't the left use that as a launch pad to argue for UBS? offering to instead spend money on a political program that few have tried and which has uncertain benefits seems a mistake. Okay, so for the records, I don't mind either. (laughs) I'm fine with both. (laughs) Either way, um, I'll I'll fuck with um, whichever one uh, gets uh, implemented. Fine by me, thumbs up. I'm down for that, Chief. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm get, get me on that. I'm I'm cool, right? I'm cool. But um, 
you know, I'd like, I'd like a, I'd, I wouldn't, I don't know which one out of the out of the two is best at the, right now. Um, you know, that's a, Aristotle makes a decent freaking argument. That's uh, for sure. Definitely makes a decent argument. Um, but you know, I feel there's uh, that. I mean, this is this is we have two years to discuss this, right? Um, and when the UBI thing finishes up. Um, hopefully we can get to a point uh, where we can actually have a, I'm just going to say it, and it's going to sound really stupid, but I'm just going to say it, a, a, a proper conversation, a nuanced conversation, mm, remember those, about all of this, and I really hope we can do that. I really hope UBS as well as UBI can be brought to the forefront and we can actually talk about it properly um, and hopefully implement some of these. And, you know, as Mr. Bastani said, UBS has is, is easy to, um, easy an easy argument to make, um, you know, with the fact that, you know, the NHS is practically that already, right? Um, but... You know, I think UBI is a very interesting experiment. Um, it has, it has, for the record, it has failed in other countries. So it's not a, you know, it's not something that has, um, you know, been a success uh, at every point. Um, but it is something that I feel is at least at minimum worth having a look at. Um, and hopefully, we can again have that conversation sometimes during the next two years and hopefully decide collectively on one of the two because at this point we need at least one of the two that's for damn sure Okay, so this has been an interesting 15-20 minutes uh, between uh, the third segment and recording of the fourth uh, because I did say I had a life segment, but now I don't because um, it's got like the, the article just dipped <laughs> just in the space of two days, like 48 hours, it's just gone. So um, I, I I can't be asked to uh, just to, I don't know, I could have like helped the Wayback Machine try and find it, but there's, there's no point if ain't there, ain't there. Um, so I just rushed to find something eff- something different. I was trying to find something in the life so I could just, you know, just not say that, you know, I had to, had to change it and you wouldn't know that you'd be none the wiser, uh, but I couldn't. So, uh, but I did find this. Um, so we, instead of life, we'll hop into music for this one. Uh, this is all about freestyling, basically. Uh, British freestyle rap videos, basically. Uh, it's called Touch Mic and Chill It. How British vi- freestyle rap videos became a global phenomenon. This is uh, by Will Pritchard uh, via The Guardian. So let's jump right in. A bright afternoon has turned a foreboding shade of grey. The rain picked up a few moments ago. Just as cameraman Barry Edmonds was negotiating an awkward set of steps backwards, trying to squeeze Cairo Keys and eight of his gesticulating friends into the frame. Uh, welcome to the glamorous world of freestyles. Edmund's longtime creative partner Tim Chave, I say Chave, had joked when this shoot had been postponed for a third time. 
and in the drizzle, his words feel prescient. We're on a post-war housing estate in Norwood, South London, just a short walk from where Keyes, a rising independent rapper, went to school. This is mad, he says, fiddling with the earbud piping a beat into his ear. I look like a federal agent. Keyes hasn't shot a video like this before. He's used to being able to take his time lip-syncing to a backing track and breaking the song into sections until he's got a bit, each bit right. Today's task is to nail it in a single take, and to do it, as the title of the freestyle series he's shooting for makes clear, with no miming. Quote, it's more challenging, he goes on, but I've been preparing for this all week. There's a break in the rain, hush falls, and Keys goes again, careering down the stairs, mob-handed. Since the first handicaps arrived on UK shores from Japan, enterprising rap fans have been sticking lenses in the faces of their talented friends and asking them to lay down a verse. No Miming is just among one among countless freestyle series that run like mortar through British rap, generating hundreds of millions of views every year. They rest on a simple, simple premise, a rapper, a microphone, and a moment in time captured forever. Freestyle in the UK refers back to the original 1980s US definition of pre-written rhymes that aren't hitched to any specific structural theme. Untethered from any requirement for distinct verses, choruses, hooks or refrains, artists can focus on flexing their rapping ability. Quote, it's the technical sides of things. Uh, with wordplay, double entendres, references, rhythm, the pocket, says Tottenham MC Avellino, whose 2015 Fire in the Booth session Alongside Wretch Free 2 remains among the series most watched with over, over 30 million views. I thought it'd be more. Uh, that's just me saying that. <laughs> I quote, I'd like to see uh, see it as when Ronaldinho would step on a football pitch. I want to entertain. I want to mesmerize with words. Unquote. All the key rap channels on YouTube have their own takes on the format. There's Grime Daily Flagship, Daily Duppy, and the Talent CD One Mike. Mixtape Madness has Next Up, The Draw Focus Plugged In, and Mad About Bars, Link Up TV, Offers an Extended Universe of HB, uh, Hashtag Mic Check, Behind Bars, and more. Uh, Black Box has been the proving ground for acts including Dave, Jay Huss, and Abracadabra, and its annual under-18 cipher consistently unearths new talents. Birmingham-based P110? 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 I don't know. P110? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, meanwhile, spotlights uh, the North with Hood's hottest uh, scene smasher and hashtag one take. Before these operations, the late Jamal Edwards SBTV laid the groundwork for uh, with warm-up sessions and F64 videos. Em- Impresario Charlie Sloth has shipped his Fire in the Booth brand from a short-run web series to Radio 1 and now Apple Music and wrapped up close to a thousand episodes in the process. The freestyle circuit has solidified as a rite of passage for homegrown MCs to the extent that at the peak of his uh, UK loving era in 2018, Drake stopped by to record his own, admittedly toe-curling behind bars freestyle, and dropped a fire in the booth a week later. Thanks for mentioning that. Collectively, these stories have formed a rich catalogue of UK MC. This is a culture which, until relatively recently, has been best overlooked and ignored by tastemakers and cultural arbiters, and at worst, demonised and stifled by authorities. Quote, When we first started filming freestyles for YouTube, everyone said, what are you doing? That's just a platform for cats on skateboards and TV rips of the wire or whatever, says Chave. Content wasn't a thing, but we saw it as the future. Quote, Soph has a similar recollection from when he joined the BBC. It was almost ridiculed, he says. The fact that I wanted to do a video format freestyle feature on a radio show... He recalls his first two years with the broadcaster when FITB sessions were shot on a threadbare setup. 
I'd be holding one of the cameras while the rapper was rapping, and then a good friend of mine would film on the other camera. When he panned to me, I'd have to put my camera down so you can see that I was filming it. Unquote. Capturing freestyles like this wasn't entirely new. The grime scene spun a good trade in DVDs with titles like Practice Hours, Aim High, and Risky Roads, themselves inspired by hip-hop's VHS era. But putting them online for fans all over the world to watch for free certainly was. That's a weird sentence. I feel like there's a, there's a word missing there. Okay, anyway, continuing on. Uh, this immediacy was uh, <laughs> what shaped the fallback, quote, Someone like Jamal Edwards would just back out a camera and be like, where's your bars? And you couldn't get away with not having put in your 10,000 hours and not being ready to go, says Avellino. When it comes to freestyle, Soft says, there's no hiding. You can rap or you can't rap. It's as simple as that. Fiddly earbuds aside, Cairo Keys doesn't appear to be feeling the pressure. Behind monochrome shades, he's a picture of control. The format also gives rappers outside uh, the London industry bubble means of cutting through. When Birmingham rapper Mist made his debut on SBTV in 2015, it was only the second time he'd set foot in the capital. He remembers the only hurdle bigger than his nerves was whether anyone from London would decipher his brummy tones. (laughs) Having a permanent accent, we don't get it easy, you know, he laughs. His warm-up session remains a classic. After Manchester's Bugsy Malone rapped on his... uh, Wrapped. I don't know if I don't know if he meant wrapped as uh with the with the first first letter R or first letter W, but first letter W's here. So double entendre. Don't ask me how. Uh, wrapped on his debut FITB. Meanwhile, uh, Sloth told him his life would never be the same again. Five UK top ten albums followed. Quote. Uh, it was a long journey up there for about three or four minutes of recording, says Brian Bass RD of his recent trip to the FITB studios in North London. But I grew up watching those three stars, so it was a little bit of a full circle moment for me. For an artist like RD, who's previously been typecast as a cheap, cheeky chappy, chart-friendly rapper, having the chance to showcase his raw rapping ability feels particularly significant. The mention of, quote, three or four minutes of recording, unquote, seems like a deliberate signal that he nailed it in one take. You go there, touch mic, and shell it, he says. Leave the place in flames. As the audience for UK rappers boomed and the scene has attracted investment from major labels and brands aiming to buy uh, buy their way into youth culture, bootstrap ventures like No Miming and Black Box, uh, which place an emphasis on live single-take performances, have become less common. Today, the UK's freestyle landscape is dominated by slicker op- operations that have swapped filming on street corners for studio setups. Artists record their freestyle track in advance then shoot the visual separately, just as they would for a more traditional music video. Competition for ears and eyeballs has pushed online broadcasters towards more narrow branding. Be it Mad About Bars, Orange Hues, Daily Duppies, Playful Lyrical Animations, or Fumes the Engineers, Grimacing Plugged-In Cutaways. For signed acts with a new album or EP to promote, trotting through a run of Daily Duppies and Mad About Bars has become a standard campaign route. And the more these platforms come to reflect the industry's wider machinations, the more they show up where UK rap is lacking too, particularly in its representation of female talents. While not without their merits, look to Fredo's Daily Duppy or Kenzo's Mad About Bars for blistering, blistering storytelling at its best. There's a broad agreement that these developments have sapped some of the raw energy from the freestyle format. Quote, I feel like a lot of the newer platforms have taken the edge off it somewhat, says Sloth. There's no pressure on the artist to deliver. They're not getting taken out of their comfort zone, which is, I feel, what brings out the greatest in the artist, unquote. 
He highlights the difference between uh, artists who cut their teeth on pirate radio or bypassing a mic in youth clubs and those who've come up on bite-sized social media buzz. Quote, it doesn't mean they're not as good as, he, uh, as, good as artists, uh, he says, but how they've developed their skills is just different, unquote. And while technology has flattened access to some opportunities, it hasn't necessarily plugged the gap left by shuttered youth clubs and radio stations, particularly when it comes to honing the skills required of live performances. As the landscape has shifted, streaming has provided monetization that didn't exist when the likes of Chave and Sloth first whipped out their cameras out. Most modern f- uh, freestyle platforms, with the exclusion of FITB, essentially function as record labels. They front the production costs for a cut of the royalties in return. The video will go on YouTube, but the track itself will go on Spotify and other streaming services. The economics won't guarantee riches in all cases, but it does mean less dependence on brand tie-ins. Whilst one is more than what is lost, says Avellino, we've lost a lot of necessity to be able to spit bars on the spot to cut through, but then I look at it today and see more kids from the gutter, from the trenches, making careers and changing their lives. I think that's a bigger win. Back in Norwood, Edmonds is beaming under his sodden beanie. That was the one, he says, calling cut on take four. When it works, you can just feel it. He has the look of someone who's bottled magic. And that, ultimately, is what any freestyle shoot is about. I really respect that, because um, I'm I'm actually not that quite into watching freestyles, you know, just, you know, as a as a consistent thing. Like, I don't... I don't spend hours every day, you know, oh, what's the next freestyle drop in? You know what I mean? I, I don't, I, I barely spend any of them because there are so many of them. Like even getting out of hip hop, hip hop or rap, right? Getting out of those, you have like the colors sessions, you have tiny desk, the bigger, the you know, two more bigger ones. Like there are so, so many out there and it's good. I'm, I'm not complaining, right? It's a, it's a glut of, um, you know, it's a it's a wealth of discovery, um, especially for the smaller ones. Really, you can just find your new favorite artist, you know, and they haven't dropped a track yet. This might be their first, uh, you know, proper track for some, you know. And I respect that. I'm I'm here for that. Um, you know, uh, uh, Kenny Beats is the cave is a is a nice, interesting, different example where you know you're watching the process happen. You're watching the artist be in the cave, and you're watching Kenny Beats chat with them, and they're you know shooting the shit, but they're also creating some heat. And all of that is very fascinating. I respect all of these formats. I'm here for it. I'm here for it all. I'm here for the diversity of it. Um, you know, I I probably prefer you know if you're gonna call it a freestyle, it better be a freestyle. Um, I feel like the term is, you know, has very loose definitions and I'm not sure when people say freestyle, they actually know what it means. Um, but, you know, either way, I'm here for it. Um, there is a glut of them. And um, yeah, I think from it, I, I, can, I discover, I discover enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I discover enough for myself and I'm happy with where I'm at I mean, in my music journey. Um, but, you know, if you are into UK rap, if you're into rap in any, any facet, um, you know, find these places, um, and, you know, watch a few videos, I'm sure, I'm sure once you get down to them, and listen to a few, you will probably find your favourite artist, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that, um, especially when you go down to history, and you see, like, old day videos, and old Dizzy Rascal videos, especially, you know, from back in the, back in grime days, and, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, Lord of the Mics, and stuff like that, that shit, man, that, that, that shit, that shit was crazy, right? 
Um, and when you go down, when you when you look at that history, oh my gosh, there's such a. It's it's definitely it's definitely a really good time capsule for a lot of these. Um, so um, yeah, I'm I'm really I really respect all of it. I'm here for it. Um, but yeah, ladies and gentlemen, um, that was a nice um, impromptu alternative. Um, but yeah, I think it was a really good uh, piece. And with that said, which I'll finish there, ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth Foot Podcast Network. I have been Charlie Taylor, and this has been Moss Good. Intro music was too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for ability to use a track. And friend of IV Nappy Hire for the ability to use Charismatic for the interlude. You can find all of their links in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until two weeks' time, <laughs> take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.